Hi everyone, welcome to episode 6 of Did You Watch The Race, the podcast where we'll be looking at the world of Formula 1 from the dual perspective of both a new fan, Colm, and a long-time viewer, Jason. And joining us this week is me, Nisha. This week on the show, we're going to be interviewing long-time listener and friend of the show, Nisha, on his past experiences in the world of Formula 1, being a journalist for many years, and as a fan. So Nisha, we're well aware who you are, but if you want to give the fans a bit of an introduction to yourself and your experience. Yeah, so I've been watching F1 for about 25 years at this stage, I guess. I remember Irvine fighting uh, Hakkinen for the title in 99 um, after Schumacher broke his leg. The time he got rinsed by Ferrari, yeah. (laughs) Yes, and... Then when I was in secondary school, I started a website about Formula One with like results and analysis. And then I started doing news. And then in the late 2000s, the FIA started accrediting uh, websites for press access to Grand Prix. And I was the first journalist to be accredited as a web journalist. And between then and 2014, I went to about 20 races as a member of the press corps. And had a fabulous time, and I guess that's what we are going to be talking about some about that today. So you said you were the first online site to get accredited with the press. What was it? The press. So just the FIA are the the crowd who accredit journalists. So print uh, journalists as opposed to uh, broadcasters, and that that the Formula One management um, do all the broadcasters so it's the FIA that do all the journalists and I think the teams at the time were looking for new blood to come into the sport and they used this as a as a way to do that and um, yeah it was I guess in the end it worked out so like at the time Autosport would have had would have been the main online publication and they had journalists that worked exclusively online but in order to get accredited, they would have like a column in the in the magazine so that they could get a, a pass to the race. But they they weren't accredited just purely by their their online presence. How big was your like just to give a bit of context, how big was your online or could you at that time before you got accredited, accredited, how many people would be reading a month or just to give us, I suppose. So I think I was lucky because I was kind of almost the first in the door. So. They never asked about viewership or readership or anything like that. It was about what um, the you had to submit prior work, so like previous articles I'd written and things like that, and you just applied. And I guess you were at the in the lap of the gods, really, as to whether you were permitted. So, so in, you chanced your arm, and they like the cut of your jib, basically. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, totally. Uh, well, I guess at the time I would have had, you know. Um, beginning relationships with the press teams in in the in the t- in the Formula 1 teams so i'm sure they would have i don't know maybe they put in a good word or they didn't put in a bad word but yeah i i slipped through the net anyway however it happened what was it like at the first weekend you walked through the gates with the press pass having been a fan for so long and then getting the opportunity to see behind the iron curtain if you will of the FIA in yeah. Formula 1 so at the time i would have been obviously very big into it so i would have been looking at photographs and videos from the paddock a lot so I would have known the the layout and kind of how things worked to a certain extent uh I remember so at the time um McLaren Mercedes had before every race weekend they would have an online I guess a phone-in interview with somebody higher up in in McLaren so their drivers or their technical personnel or um people like that and I remember I emailed the the head of communications at McLaren 
that week for that thing saying oh sorry I've actually I'm now an accredited member of the press so I don't think I'm allowed to go because it was uh, set up for the online journalist that wouldn't necessarily be going to a race and maybe you know this guy called Matt Bishop um, he was the head of communications for Aston Martin last year and he's very he's got a a great presence on Twitter. He's very for racing pride and LGBT and everything like that. And he's a very stand-up guy. So he emailed me saying, oh, welcome to the Piranha Club. <laughs> um, I think that was a, a phrase used by Ron Dennis to Eddie, Ir- Eddie Jordan many, many years ago. Um, so that was a nice welcome to the to the paddock, I guess, in a certain respect. And um, What age were you at the time? So that was tw- 2009, so I was 21. There, thereabouts. Yeah. And like, by and large, so you were there with a lot of people a lot older than you, or...? Oh, yeah. 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 The vast majority there are professional journalists, and that's their their life and how they, they earn a living. Was there a bit of a... They were looking at you saying, oh, this fucker's basically just come in, you know, he has a website, I, he hasn't done the legwork, say, that they would have seen themselves haven't done. Was, like, a bit of a chip on the shoulder to when the FIA released that press pass to everyone? I, I, uh, I don't think so. But a lot of people would report on, you know, the junior level racing, especially in Britain, where you have Formula Ford, Formula 3 and, and other categories where people can, you know, earn the respect and, and that kind of thing. So, but yeah, I'm from Cork. I just go in at the top, you know, and <laughs> and take it from there. Did anyone, did any of the reporters kind of take you under their wing and show you kind of the ropes or anything? As like, I know you'd already done some stuff before, but like when you arrived for the first time, did they show you in the paddock or anything or introduce you to people or... There were loads of people that were really kind and really supportive across the FIA, the teams and other journalists. And they were really welcoming. And I still have friends that I would visit occasionally from the people I met in F1. And I get they were outwardly very, very friendly and very welcoming and giving me the the inside word on how things are done in the paddock. And like if you're given, if you're in a a certain team's motorhome and you're given a tip or uh, some information on the side that you want to keep on the QT. Let's say I'm in the Ferrari motorhome and I hear something about McLaren, then you're not supposed to walk straight from the Ferrari motorhome into the McLaren motorhome to, to ask the question that you have to be a bit more subtle about and maybe... Playing the game. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> however much you think you... I thought as uh, you know an online journalist who reads a lot and watches all the races and all of the practice and qualifying sessions and read all the magazines and everything that you know a lot about what's going on in the sport but in reality it's the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more going on underneath the surface that the media never get to find out about and that's where you need to be fostering relationships with the the higher ups in teams to find out what's the actual story was there any point was anything that you kind of found out that you were like oh you kind of realize oh i'm actually not allowed to write about this or publish this because it's a bit kind of beyond your remit or like because there was quite a bit of drama in that, say. So you covered from 2009 to 2012? Yeah, that was when... 2012 was my last kind of full year. Yeah. So there was quite a bit of drama. Yeah, so not so much about stuff I didn't write, but the I remember I wrote an article for GP Week that was like an online weekly magazine. Shock horror. Yeah. And I wrote an article about... It was Force India and Caterham at the time, I think. And... There was something going on that had Caterham use some Force India data because they're using a common third party. I'm not sure how accurate this is. But in in effect, I think that there was a chance that the FIA were going to fine Caterham or Force India for that use. And it could have... The, well, the theory that we had was it was going to cost them $100 million. And 
and cater them at the time had 10 quid <laughs> yeah. to put between them. Uh, and I wrote that article and then I got a, a kind of um, an email from the press department of that team saying uh, we're kind of looking at, at legal action for people who are writing articles like this so I responded with a, an email that was I think roughly the length of the article the <laughs> yeah but I, I responded to that email with a a big thousand word response and I think the response I got back was thank you Nisha <laughs> basically just being a pain in the ass and they were like yeah no we can't can't be <laughs> bothered with this guy yeah well obviously he was responding to orders from higher up and kind of poking and prodding I guess but uh yeah that was interesting so we won that one was that the only legal action against you during your career? Or? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I was very well behaved. It, it's tough because it, it's such a small community. You can't really be picking fights with people because the teams do have sway with the FIA. And I know that some teams were asking the FIA who was giving me a pass. So um, I, I I view that as a, a good thing that I was probably doing my job and You're telling stories. Yeah, 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 yeah. Every now and again. So It's, yeah, very, like, in almost anything you do, you need to make a big enough splash to get noticed but not to get thrown out you know there's there's a line to walk yeah absolutely and i think again the community is so small that if you have a story and you go to a team with it they might give you another story to run instead and that's where it's kind of bartering almost for information and for stories or that's how it used to work anyway because i find a lot of people kind of forget at the back of it all the sport is full of people it's 300 400 500 people in a team making the car it's not 300 million making the car it's the people making the car so it's very easy the same in any sport to blame everyone that they're not doing a good enough job but at the end of the day they're trying to do the rest mm. <laughs> yeah i think that was something that uh was it last week's race that um i think it was ted but he said that michael massey was there that weekend and he i think he made a good point of like he's a person so please treat him well regardless of what your allegiances were previous years i thought that was really nice of ted if you had somebody sitting over your shoulder every day you're in the office telling you, oh, you're doing a shit job writing that email, like you'd feel bad about it. So, yeah. yeah. And it's the whole paddock is is like a big family because they travel away to races and they're off the other side of the world for weeks at a time. And they tend to flock together and they, they know one another quite well. So it's not really 10 independent teams and the kind of the press corps and the broadcasters is you know um alongside that it's just it's one big family and they're all trying to trying to get along so that's an important part of it as well and actually on that what's the relationship like between the comms team and journalists like is there a level of rapport or like what's the attitude basically from internal in the um each team towards the press well my experience was the communications teams are very welcoming of journalists because they want people to write good stories about them and there's a lot of uh press events that you get free merch and things like that and free events so as that they can the journalists can write a nice story about their drivers and their team with pictures of their sponsors and everything like that so and like monaco was a great one for that because that's the the crown jewel in formula one and they all want to have these little events and have freebies for the journalists so that they remember to write a story about you when they're picking out their features for that weekend is it yeah it's kind of a case of their job is to stay ahead of any bad news by having good news in the backlog effectively i don't know if it's that because i don't think they can really if there's bad enough news to be published then that's going to get through but it's about also having the the good fluffy news stories that you know sky can fill five minutes before the race with or 
you know, they have these little 10 minute segments that they put on as fillers between shows and things like that. So that's all valuable for sponsors and helps them justify their spending, you know. You obviously met a lot of people and you probably had some really good experiences. What's your favorite memory from the time that you spent there or not spent there, but like when you were traveling? Oh, man. Here's an easier one. Who's the who's the most uh, who's the person that you are most happy to meet? So the favorite driver I enjoyed interviewing or being at a round table with was Kimi Raikkonen because he would just take no shit and if he was asked a stupid question he would just refuse to answer and he said no just move on you know questions like oh what kind of rule changes would you like in the future and he'd Did just you, say no no <laughs> carry you on feel intimidated by his presence well, you do feel a bit of pressure to ask a real kind of proper question because he's just going to turn around and say no did he ever tell you to fuck off <laughs> he never told me no i always asked very did you wish that he questions did? <laughs> <laughs> yeah a little bit um uh, yeah, so I really fanboyed about him because he was a super quick driver and really chill and like a human, you know. So he's exactly almost as he's been presented. Oh, entirely. Yeah, yeah. there's no. Yeah, that's Kimmy. Yeah. Who was your least favorite driver to interview or ask questions with? I never built any rapport with Paul DeResta. He was the oh. most boring guy to interview. And uh, yeah, I just never. He never had any enthusiasm or passion for it or he never was able to get that across when he was talking to journalists i think at the time was he teammate to nico hulkenberg yes. in force india so hulkenberg was not as passionate but a bit more fortright or something like that i'm not too sure i can't this is 10 years ago so it's it's uh, tricky enough to remember but maybe an alternative mm-hmm question or something to piggyback on that is did you encounter any drivers who are very different or surprisingly different from their public image yeah that's a very good question (laughs) i i think i would need to look back at like the the driver lists for 09 10 11 12 to kind of remember who was there and who that might jog the memory a little bit so and uh, Rosberg, Schumacher, Kubica, Petrov, Liuzzi, Buemi, De La Rosa, Heidfeld, Agshari, Kovalainen, Truly. Oh, Chanduk. God, I forgot about when Karun was... I, do you know what? Six like, races in. You're kind of going through the names and I'm thinking, yeah, they were just normal. They were, as they appear... Degrassi. On the tin, you know? Glock, Yamamoto and... Oh, Yamamoto was good Klein. fun. Was my, he? I, I, my, a friend of mine was good friends with... Sakon and uh, yeah he was a good crack I remember it was it the first race in Valencia in 2009 I went to we went to the after party and I don't know we were standing outside afterwards myself and my friend Adam and Sakon was there as well and I know it ended up with him saying fuck you or fuck off to me so uh, yeah <laughs> all in jest <laughs> as a press member I imagine you get invited to a lot of team or you know press orientated events or shindigs and uh, you know obviously as you had said previously about getting the good press but also you know keeping reputations up and stuff was there any kind of standout or unusual events that you ever went to that you were like this is a bit bizarre or this is really different so there's a little bit of a divide because I was always a race by race press pass so not part of the the permanently accredited crew who get a pass at the start of the year and they keep the same pass and they can go to all the races and they have they're a bit closer with the teams and I wouldn't have had the money anyway to be doing a lot of things outside race weekends so they would have press events usually on the Thursday so 
typically you'd be at the track or they might have some event elsewhere a lot of the time it would be sponsor events so like red bull had casio as a sponsor so they'd have a little event for that and they'd give you a free watch i have one right here viewers get a look at this (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i think i got this watch from uh from red bull at the monaco grand prix in 2012 and Can you describe for the uh, audio medium that is podcasting, please? It's glow in the dark. Oh. Uh, and it's blue and it tells the time, although the battery is currently running low, so it doesn't currently tell the time very well. <laughs> is that the best piece of swag you received from any of the teams? or? I also had a, have another Casio watch from Red Bull that the, the clock face is carbon fibre, or looks like carbon fibre. So it's a bit more F1 relevant. How is it in the press having a favourite team or driver? Is it kind of not frowned upon, but oh, do, we, do you we, have you to Oh, we wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't even have had a favourite team or driver when I was going to races. I don't. It's not something that you do. I remember I had my, my bag was stolen from me at the Italian Grand Prix in 2010. I was in the middle of finishing my master's thesis at the time. They stole my laptop and everything else inside. Now, they did take out my uh, Ryanair boarding passes and my passport and left them in the bag. Very thoughtful (laughs) thieves, yeah. But it meant I didn't have any sunglasses or hat or anything. So I went and I went to Pirelli to get a a baseball cap to wear for the rest of the weekend because I didn't want to be going around with a team cap. On that bad experience, what would you say was the maybe the worst or the least pleasant experience because you've been to so many races and not all of them could have been fantastic all the time that's probably right up there uh although it's <laughs> um i wouldn't say it's my fault but it's quite common for that to happen there um i think it's the usual thing of they can read your remote control locking and you can just repeat that to open and close it so it's what? it's uh you don't notice it until you're back at your B&B or whatever. So. And this was at Monza. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lovely pizzeria just uh, outside the track called Allen Beak and the whole paddock loves to go there every race weekend and I was there with uh, a friend who is back working for F1 now again. He's from Northern Ireland, so he was good fun. He's working directly with F1, not in the press. Yeah, he was always in, in the timing department uh, making sure that the lap times are correct. And one funny story he told me at, at the Italian Grand Prix was usually they've got loads of time to take the time equipment off the start finish line after the end of the race. But in Monza, they've to jump over the fence as soon as the last car crosses the, the finish line to make sure their equipment isn't stolen. So to add to the least favorite, I guess the, the last race I attended was the 2014 Japanese Grand Prix in Suzuka, which ended under red flag after Jules Bianchi's big accident um and he succumbed to his injuries a few months later so that was a fairly subdued atmosphere at the end of that race understandably yeah yes yeah, yeah he was um being a ferrari at now probably with charles leclerc fighting for championships with max verstappen it's so he's probably one of the biggest what ifs in formula one so say if he had to have gone to ferrari say vettel never would have went to ferrari or, or might not have went to ferrari leclerc might never have been in it there's so much could have happened if he had unfortunately yeah yeah not not too dissimilar a story to robert kubitza really because he was in line for a ferrari seat as well and was like he was leading the championship in a bmw sauber what made you stop i know you're obviously very busy but did you ever consider like keeping with it or did you have to make a decision at some point or did you just not get any more invites to races i never wanted to do it 
for a career so for 40 years it's a tough job you you're traveling nowadays you're traveling what 30 weekends of the year between kind of sometimes for long haul races you have to leave the weekend before and there are experienced experienced journalists in the paddock at the time when I was there that were struggling to make ends meet and it's not the life that I wanted to lead but I was happy enough to do it for a couple of years and um yeah a great opportunity to have had but not a career yeah is there anything you would like to talk about from your time in F1 is there any anecdotes or doesn't have to be good bad indifferent just what you would like to talk about so for me the big advantage to being there as a as a press member yes you can sit down at the round tables and you can have a chat to the drivers and you can see what's going on and and everything during the race you actually know less about what's going on than people at home because all you have are tv screens there's no audio you have tv screens with the world feed and you have the timing screens and you really need to have a vpn and you know um, VPN into the UK to listen to BBC at the time or Sky as it would be now but the big advantage is being able to get a, a tabard to go trackside and watch um, F1 cars go through phenomenal corners at amazing speeds and at the time they still had the V8 engines and I remember standing like at Monza watching at the Ascari chicane or at the Lesmos and um, being right down at track level and seeing them at that kind of an angle is is really cool in spa being right at the bottom of i guess it's radion is it or rouge is at the top i think that's a lot (laughs) (laughs) and you know you you feel them before you see them and watching the speed of them go through the bottom of radion and up the hill around or rouge is just uh phenomenal and then the the last race i was at in in suzuka there's a, a really good viewing point that you need a tabard to to get to so photographers get them and media get them as well broadcast media and kind of down to your left you've got the the two degners and you can see the the hairpin off to the right and then kind of coming in front of you are cars coming around 130 or and it's one of the most spectacular places to watch formula one cars racing around but that year was the first year of the v8s or the v6s the turbocharged and the the noise has not been the same since then and um i decided at that point it was like okay i'm i'm done now i don't need to go to any more f1 races yeah i i was very fortunate that i got to see 2013 spa now it was a snooze fest for a race but seeing 24 cars at the time barrel around spa with the v8s uh, there's no there's no comparison in the world the, like yeah like you said feel it before you see them hear them and then you're just crying because your ears hurt. <laughs> oh, and back then you would be able to get earplugs from all the teams and you would need them trackside. But again, when I was in, in Japan in, in 14, there wasn't any need for earphone or earplugs. And that made me a bit sad. I remember watching the RTE coverage of F1 back in the day when Peter Collins was the lead commentator and David Kennedy and then Declan Quigley in the pits. And I remember... Peter Collins describing F1 engines at the time and they would have been V10s at the time I'd say in the early 2000s and he was saying it's like putting your head inside a lion's mouth and the lion roaring at you and you know that's what it was like it was you didn't just hear it but you felt it and no more was that evident than in the tunnel in Monaco where the sound just builds and builds and builds and it's uh it's spectacular it's it's like nothing else I think in terms of watching F1 cars 
I went to the Monaco Grand Prix in 2012 after I had decided I was kind of done. I had had my stint and I was ready to move on. And I just spent the whole race trackside and most of the sessions as well because I, I didn't really need to be writing anymore. And it's still to this day, as far as I know, you can get up right up to the barriers in a lot of places, which I think it's, you know, they're just one accident away from all that ending. But um, at the time, you're you're close enough, like around to back, that you can almost tap the driver on, on the head when they're going past. You're so close and it's it's something else. Yeah. That's a massive allure of the sport as well when you go to it because it it's a way worse sport to watch live than it is to watch on TV. But when you're there and you're like, this is what I watch on TV. This is they're the people driving it. Like I can see the apex. I can see what they're aiming for. It it completely transforms in your head how you view the sport because the TV flattens out. Say like over rouge, a lot of a lot of turns they just look like turns. Whereas when you actually see them in person, it makes it so much more real in your head. Oh, totally. I remember still, like it was yesterday, in in Spa, the, so all tracks have um, car parks for accredited media and accredited personnel. And the car park in Spa is, um, I guess if you can visualise going from La Source up to Le Com through Eau Rouge, the car park is off to the left, kind of through the trees. And they have shuttle buses running to drive you to the paddock once you once you park your car and the first time i did that they drive you in basically under eau rouge and before you get under eau rouge you can it just rises up out of the ground like a wall on your left when you drive in and i had never i think you, you can't appreciate it or you don't have the just the sheer awesomeness of it until you're actually there in person because video and photographs just don't do it justice and i know they always try and like they they roll things down the hill to show you how steep it is but that that never does it justice at all no yeah the first time you see it it looks like a vertical incline it it, oh it's it's bananas yeah yeah so nishi you have a few props to show us that you want to explain yeah so um the main prop i have is i was telling you earlier about the tabards you can get as a member of the press to go trackside and at the Monaco Grand Prix, I got one, as I usually do, and was able to take some lovely photographs. So I actually have a photo of Mark Webber on his way to win that Grand Prix. And um, I have his signature on the photos that I took. Um, so I, I planned this one out. But I also have a photograph of myself taking a photograph of Danny Rick at the hairpin in Monaco. Oh, you, them shades. You can you can see <laughs> yeah, there, wow. you, you can see the tabard that I'm wearing. So then uh, as I was just going to, at the Italian Grand Prix in 2012, which was my, my last race, I guess, as a member of the press, I got that tabard and I got all the world champions at the time to sign it. And oh. I don't know if you remember, but back in 2012, I think there were six world champions. So I got them all to sign Fuck. it. Fuck. Oh my God. Um, yeah, so there's, there's Lewis there. Um, I think Kimmy signed it in like a gold pen because because (laughs) because he's Kimmy you know well he was also driving for Lotus at the time with the the gold black and gold gold. Um, there's Fernando I don't know who that is but it's whoever isn't isn't there yeah and Schumacher and Button are there somewhere as well so they were they were all the drivers that I had that were world champions at the time that I had seen racing as a journalist. 
And since then, the only other driver that has been champion that I would have seen at the time was Rosberg. But he was only champion in 2016, so I never actually saw him racing as a champion. Well, I guess nobody did see him racing as a champion because he won at the last race and then retired. Yeah, so he there just we go. Noped out of there. <laughs> did you ever get? Were you ever completely starstruck? Asking, doing your job effectively, asking people questions. No, I don't think you can be, and you need to be professional, right, and keep your cool. But that can be hard when you're um, standing in front of multiple world champions and the best people in the world at that particular job. I guess so. Yeah. Um, I feel like I've always known you to be that way. As in, like, I've seen you talk to, like, and from a traveling context, again, it's probably not relevant to the podcast. <laughs> but from my perspective, I've always seen you, like, talk to, like, um, people who I respect a lot in trampoline, and, and you've always, like, been very cordial and kept your cool and seemed like you belong there. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And this obviously gives a lot more context. Mm. I think it goes back to what Jason was saying before about, you know, their people at the end of the day, maybe it was you, Colm, that you kind of just need to get down on their same or maybe get up to their same level but yeah you gotta interact with them as humans rather than these personalities and yeah, so celebrities like, everyone's just person like and then you realise you're better than all of them so it's all fine <laughs> well I am from Cork so. <laughs> that's definitely not it though <laughs> so I'm very proud of this photograph actually maybe you can pop them up on the old Insta you can see all later these on. lovely pictures on our Instagram did you watch the race all one word <laughs> So I have this very artsy shot of Bruno Senna coming through the tunnel in Monaco in a Williams. And it's mostly in focus where I want it to be, but it's yeah, it's good at dramatising the, the speed and the power of, of F1. Uh, and he was very kind to put the date on it as well, oh. so just in case I... This is amazing. <laughs> yes, it's very cool. And here's Mark Webber on his way to winning that particular race. So uh, did you do a lot of press photography as well as writing? No, or was the photography more like a, a side hobby as you were there? Abs- yeah, absolutely. I, you know, the there were plenty of photographers that are a lot more talented than I was and still am doing their job. And as a member of the press, they give you free photographs to use in your articles and on your website. So I never had to pay for any photographs um, because the team supply them for promotional purposes and for editorial purposes. But I like to take a camera around the paddock and take photos of things that you mightn't see otherwise and at the Monaco Grand Prix then obviously I wanted to take my own photographs as well to kind of mark the occasion uh, I think this is Adrian Sutil at the harbour chicane uh, it's kind of quite an iconic shot with Monaco in the background um, and it's one of the few places on the F1 calendar that it's not the worst idea in the world to sit down so rule number one when you're trackside watching motor racing you never sit down because you can't run away when something goes wrong but that shot is quite famous i guess in in f1 for uh sitting down again really close to the to the ground and having that shot of monaco kind of driver's view almost plus yeah, yeah. and these all photos you've taken yes yes they're Apart from the one that was taken off me, taking a photo. <laughs> no, you took that one too. It's canon. Uh, very difficult to take photos of F1 cars. They move incredibly Almost fast. impossible, yeah. Yeah, it's... it's I, I don't know how the professionals do it, but like maybe one in every ten would have the F1 car in frame, yeah. you know? And maybe one in every five of those would actually be in focus. So lots of trial and error. Did you ever have any moments where you had to up and leg it from where you were standing? because of an instant or anything 
So I rarely stood trackside for a race. The Monaco Grand Prix was the only time it would have been trackside because I had finished my career, so to speak. So you would take kind of practice sessions to, to stand trackside. Uh, my only, or the only incident I remember was not as a journalist, but as a fan at, at the Italian Grand Prix in 2006. I was in the stand at turn one on the right hand side as you're going to the chicane and in this big championship battle with, with Schumacher and Alonso's engine blew right in front of me as he was going into the first corner, you know, however many laps through the race. Uh, and what did you throw on the track to make it happen? <laughs> <laughs> I was devastated when that happened. I grew up watching F1, or the first, Schumacher dominated the five of the first six years that I was watching F1, so uh, I feel people's pain when they talk about Hamilton winning everything all around him all the time, and... I guess I was happy for Schumacher's reign to come to an end at the time. Everyone always gives out about domination, but so we've had Merck domination, say for what, that was 2014 to 2021, effectively. You had Red Bull for four years before that. There's been a constant periods of domination with peppered with one or two great seasons in between. It's just kind of how the sport works. Yeah, and of course my first year was 2009 when uh, Braun GP were dominating and, and winning everything well, in the first half of the year anyway. I remember the first two, first two races that I attended as a as a journalist was Valencia 09 and Monza 09 and I don't know don't know if you remember but they were the two races that Barrichello won so he never won a race again and maybe that's because I didn't go to any more races that year and Button then won the title that's a nice segue coming up in the next few episodes we're going to be doing some tech rewinds going through past marvels of engineering and F1 so the double diffuser from Braun will be yeah. one of those uh, one of those segments cool Bringing it back to the present day then, Nisha, how do you feel this season is going and do you have any expert predictions for the rest of the year? Uh, I think it's really hard to see Red Bull being caught. I don't, they haven't been pushed this year yet. And, you know, Verstappen was, what was he, eight seconds ahead in, in Australia before the second and third red flags came out. And it looks like they're just, they're going at a canter and... I think the teams themselves are saying that they're still sandbagging and that they're not showing their true pace because if they were going up the road and winning by a minute or a lap in a race, then the FIA would clamp down on something that they're doing. So it's better off that they win by five seconds or 10 seconds and keep going the way they are. So I, I think they they won't be caught unless something dramatic happens and Mercedes seem to be there thereabouts, but they're just fighting Ferrari and, and, and Aston. Do you think you could cause a bit of an upset if you started attending the races again and then Barrichello could win some? Yeah, yeah, we need to get him back on uh, in an Aston or something and um, get him fighting for the title again, yeah. Out of the current grid for 2023, who do you see the most potential in? Because we've discussed our established legends and our world champions who are still obviously on the grid, but out of the younger crew, who is there anyone you particularly see potential in? just from watching the sport for so long. Well, it's got to be Oscar Piastri, right? He's Did he have one season GP2? And it took a while to get going, but once he got going, he was unbeatable. And you saw the same kind of thing from Hamilton. He was one year in GP2 and and won, and same with Rosberg, although I guess that was the first year of GP2. But it, it's that kind of talent that you see that they're able to learn quickly, and then once they're in the zone, they just, they're uncatchable. And I think, yeah, so he, he's the standout. Uh, but he's obviously hampered by the McLaren in its current state so I don't know sometimes the first year as a rookie can write the script for the rest of your career and I hope that that's not going to happen with Piastri because you know 
um, there's a lot of potential there. So, less buttons, more. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, a short view to the past. <laughs> that. <laughs> less buttons, more. <laughs> There, there have been a few of those very long-winded questions from that particular journalist, yeah. haven't there? Did you meet him, actually? Would you know who that is? No, I, I don't. But I know, um, the is it the Renault engine technical director? Was it Bob Bell? And he would, you know, on Thursdays, usually there'd be a press conference with the drivers. And at the time, it was just five drivers per weekend in that press conference. And they'd be somewhat randomly selected. But if there was a bit of controversy, they'd obviously throw them in and on the Friday then the drivers would be busy driving and then they'd have the technical directors or team personnel press conferences after practice and uh, Bob Bell was in there once and I was asking a few questions about the new engine regulations or something or how they were going at Renault and Bob was well known for giving very very long winded answers and I asked him two questions and I was scolded by the transcriber afterwards for asking two questions so that's something I didn't know so yeah be careful who you ask questions to less questions more (laughs) I think we have a few listener questions as well so thank you to everyone who submitted their questions for our special mystery guests so the first question is about drivers and the press. So do drivers need to answer all press questions? And do, well, we've actually established that they sometimes say, yeah, fuck it, off. If, if you're Kimmy, you, you don't yeah. have to answer anything, <laughs> but uh, mostly they're quite polite and they would. So there's like r- the relevant amount of question dodging. Yeah. So I, I, just to give, I guess, some background. So typically on a Thursday, which is the media day, and I think it's still the media day, but the teams would have round tables so the driver would literally sit down at a table in the motorhome and you would come and you'd ask your questions but because there's loads of round tables happening at the same time you'd have to pick and choose which ones you'd go to so it's not like you'd have well I guess the the bigger publications like Autosport who have four or five journalists there would I guess uh, figure out which, which round tables to go to but that'd be your main source of information and then on Friday, Saturday and Sunday after each practice session there would be the the drives would be there and you'd be able to ask questions again in the motorhome or in the in the bullpen as they call it. And then you kinda of flag down team members as you saw them and kinda of just doorstep them in the in the paddock. Back then there was plenty access to, to drivers and uh, but no they were all fairly courteous so. except for the rest of them. <laughs> well he was courteous, he was just a bit boring. <laughs> yeah. Um did you push any of the driver's buttons? You specifically? Ooh, I, I don't think so. Uh, I can't remember. I I remember having a few spats with Stefano Domenicali and the Ferrari team principal at the time, and he had a great memory actually because he Ferrari won the Malaysian Grand Prix in twenty twelve, and I asked a question like, "Oh, does that kind of lift the pressure off for the rest of the season?" And he said, "Oh, you've asked that question before." So I'd obviously asked that question the previous season or something, and he had the. Um, a very sharp memory so it's no surprise to me that he's now leading the or the president of F1 uh, Corp this person has asked what Daniel Ricciardo smells like I don't know if you crop paths with Daniel Ricciardo much Ooh, do you know what I was actually at Daniel Ricciardo's first race at Silverstone in whatever year it was because I remember because he was racing for HRT and he came in and replaced another driver and he was just like Danny Rick is now, very smiley. And I, I went to his first press conference in the HRT motorhome, which was a like an awning off the side of a truck. And it would have been fairly standard back back then. 
And yeah, he was all happy and jolly to be on the F1 grid. And did you get a whiff or no? Ah, no, he was uh, meadow fresh. So finally, do you have any tips for anyone who is interested in maybe exploring a a career or um, a hobby in F1 journalism or you're not in that world now, but is there any tips for anyone who's starting out? Or, you know, for people that maybe want to start a podcast about F1 or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us press passes. <laughs> I've, I have no idea how the system works now. I think I was really lucky that I hit the sweet spot of it was literally as things were starting and I was able to build up a relationship with the the media delegate in, in the FIA to the point where after I'd left, I was still able to come back for a couple of races afterwards and just swan around with a pass around my neck and no responsibilities. It was great. It kind of sounds like you, you got lucky enough that it was like, it wasn't the dawn of the internet, but it was like, I think F1 obviously run by a lot of older people at that time and the internet was still kind of a magical thing <laughs> and you were able to like capitalize on online media. Yeah, I, and I think especially Jason, you remember that there was never any videos up on YouTube and there was no access and it was really hard to, like teams couldn't post anything from the paddock or from within the racetrack. And once Liberty came in, that changed completely and like 50% of us here are, have come to know F1 through Drive to Survive and that's that's huge, you know. The, so many more of my friends now are interested in watching F1 races, whereas that wouldn't have been the case back when I was going to races and thinking I was, you know, shit hot and... Um, <laughs> It's you were in those sunglasses. <laughs> We've were. seen the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Nisha, for joining us. Um, Nisha's obviously a very experienced uh, F1 journalist. Would you stick around for a bit of F pun? Ah, uh, yeah, I listen anyway. Yeah, <laughs> you can pick the category: furniture. Oh God. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cheryl's the chair. <laughs> nice. Since sofa. <laughs> <laughs> So bad. Esteban oven. <laughs> <laughs> what about Esteban cushion? No, that doesn't work. <laughs> Neither of them are puns, really. Jensen futon. That's actually pretty nice. Christian corner table is not a thing. <laughs> or corner sofa. I don't know. <laughs> Toto wolf rug. Oh. Um, Daniel recliner. Oh. <laughs> These are really good. <laughs> Lance baby stroller. Furniture? Not a piece of furniture, but I like it. Uh, it could be. It could be decorative. Fernando Alonso sofa. That's probably better than Yuki's oh. and sofa. <laughs> Stop harping on about sofas. <laughs> Estebol Akan. Oh, yeah, I like that. How oh, is that furniture on a stroller, is it? This is ridiculous. Because I control the audio equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis Hamill stool. <laughs> Pierre Gaz Sullivan. <laughs> Lamp Stroll. Oh, that's actually good. <laughs> nice. So that's all from us, folks, for this week. Thanks again to Nisha for coming on the podcast and answering all of our questions. We really appreciate it. Um, and thank you, all the listeners, for submitting your questions and for giving us a listen. If you have enjoyed the podcast, which I'm sure you absolutely have, you can give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Nisha, I believe you are subscribed on Google Podcasts. Um, if you like to leave us a review as well, if you do actually listen, that would be really helpful to us. And if you Can like I to- review even if I haven't listened? Um, yeah. yeah, but only if it's good. 
positive. You can review this one because you know you, you've been here for. <laughs> I know all the content. You yeah. know it. We're also on Instagram. Uh, you can find us at Did You Watch the Race, all one word. And you should check out Cody Illustrations as well, as she does our lovely artwork every week. We will hopefully be starting a TikTok soon. Next week, we're not one hundred percent sure what we'll be doing. So if anyone is out and they'd like us to cover, please let us know, and we will have a fun episode next week. Thanks for listening. I've been Jason. I've been Gemma. I'm still Colm. And I'm Nisha. And we'll talk to you next week.